I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzried. This week on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, food is a vehicle that allows us to travel all around the globe. We become enriched by tasting flavors and experiencing different cultures through cuisine. Today, we sit down with international food legend, a beloved chef, author, and longtime PBS TV host, Chef Martin Yan. And later, we'll sit down with leading educators from the esteemed culinary school at Johnson & Wales University, who are helping shape the future of sustainable food and culinary lifestyles around the world. We have students who are saying like, chef, I'm finding like a moral compass in my cooking, like, you know, a North Star that's sort of driving me in a direction. And that's something you've never seen in a traditional culinary program. You know, you've seen people drive for excellence without a definition of what that excellence is. It's time to come together on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. The ancient trade in spices might be described as the first wave of culinary globalization. Asian spices became an essential part of the aristocratic Roman diet, especially Indian black pepper. Today, globalization has opened up the vast diversity of food cultures around the world. Many international cuisines are no longer foreign due to an appetite for culinary knowledge, along with chefs demonstrating their experience and skill. Evidence of the fast melting pot of eclectic neighborhood restaurants existing today. Like many others as a child, my own culinary horizons were expanded in the early days of public television. The awareness of food world became very small with only a few talented TV hosts cooking and sharing French and Chinese cuisine to a hungry audience who wanted to know more. It is important to remember how far we have come by those who have led the way to teach us about their culture and cuisine. Today, we're joined by a very talented chef whose career on television for over 40 years, with over 3,000 shows, dozens of cookbooks, and as an international food ambassador, has shared his unique humor and strong passion for cooking with many around the globe. When you talk public television cooking show legends, there's Julia, Jacques, and of course, Martin. His motto is the perfect introduction. Yang can cook, and so can you. Welcome, Martin. It's, it's such a pleasure seeing you again. Well, long time no see. Um, you know, we are all in the food business and we're all having a good time. Continue to be in the food business. You know, we, our career have lasted for over 45 years to 50 years doing the same thing like Julia, like Jacques, like many um, luminary uh, uh, before me or uh, uh, after us. Well, Mark, I don't think there's anyone more appropriate than yourself that knows about global cuisine and the roots of cuisine and the heritage of cuisine, you know, throughout your series and your shows and your tours. Um, But I want to ask you to bring us back to where it all began. I mean, it was in Guangzhou. Am I saying that right? Yeah, I I grew up in uh, the city of Guangzhou, used to be called Canton. That's why they refer Cantonese food. It's uh, they have the, the Guangzhou, Shanghai, and all these they in Mandarin. Basically, I grew up in a restaurant in, in the food business. My when I was before I, w- I was even born, my father had a restaurant, had a very popular uh, neighborhood restaurant, about sixty seats. It's always packed. My mom actually uh, a couple of blocks away have a run a small neighborhood grocery store. So when I was growing up. I'm very much exposed to all of these firsthand exposed to all the Chinese ingredients, Chinese food seasoning. I know what is the difference between dark soy and light soy and hoisin sauce and chili sauce and rice vinegar and all of those things. 
and a salted plum and a salted vegetable, a dry fish and all of those. So I was very much exposed to all of these in the early days of my uh, childhood. Then, um, when, then when I was about 13, uh, before that, my, my father passed away. So my mother encouraged me to go to Hong Kong. We have a distant uncle who have a restaurant in Hong Kong. So in a tender age, about 13, I actually left home. When I moved to Hong Kong, I actually uh, stayed, slept in the restaurant after the restaurant closed. I went to high school and I helped out in, in the summer, uh, on the weekend, um, in the summer, and also uh, after school, I help out. I work work in the in the restaurant. I I peel the the potato. I I, I get the the sweet potato and I, I clean up the vegetable. I bone the chicken. That's why I can after millions of chicken that I have bone and practice. That's why <laughs> I can literally bone a chicken in eighteen seconds nowadays. So basically, um, in terms of skill, in terms of skill, I I basically inherit. And um, and um, I acquired my skill during that few years when I went to high school. And then right before I come, people told me, "Hey, if you are really good cook, you know how to do it, and you can get a job, um, a, a, a part-time job to support yourself if you are good enough." So I went to a cooking school for eight for eight months, and I don't have any money, so I end up I don't have any money to pay for tuition. I, so I negotiated with the with the the, the founder. Uh, 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 president of the of the cooking school, I said, "Look, I don't have any money, but I want to learn. But well, how how how's that? I'll help you to go shopping. I help you to wash all the dishes, and then you waive my tuition fee." So I went for eight months of vigorous training without paying anything, and I learned a lot more because I, I was assigned to to shop in the in the market. So I learned what is fresh, what is in season, and what to pay because he taught me. And then also I learned how to wash dishes so fast that I don't need a washing, uh, the, uh, dishwashing machine anymore now. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can break the dishes as fast as I can wash. <laughs> Martin, in those years, was there a moment that you knew food was going to be what you did for the rest of your life? Uh, not really. You know, when you're a little kid, uh, all you want to do is to survive. And also I have no direct relatives in Hong Kong. So I have to rely on myself. And then after I graduated from high school, um, then I had the opportunity to be sponsored by a church leader to come to the U.S. And, and continue my education. So I went to UC Davis, and eventually, uh, when I landed there, being a foreign student, is a lot. We pay approximately about three times as much as local residents. So I found out that uh, a friend of mine in Los Angeles, Madame Wu, actually teach cooking classes in UCLA. And I heard that they're doing really well. And so I went down there and I took a Greyhound and went down to visit her. And she said, you go back to UC Davis and talk to the extension, uh, the, uh, the director of extension, and tell them you want to teach. And I came back and I talked to the, uh, the extension director and said, I want to teach. They said, are you a master chef? I said, not, not really. Uh, do you have any teaching certificate? I said, I, am, I don't. I don't. Um, I don't have any. And I have, you've been a head chef in a hotel restaurant for at least 10 years. I said, I have never been a head chef either. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, you say, university extension have program that taught by experts in the field and also uh, the professors. And, and, and we can't have you because the extension is very, we pay, we charge people a lot of money uh, to, 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 to be, to study in, in this field of, a special field of uh, uh, um, uh, the trade. 
So I said, well, you know, um, I keep on bugging him for almost a whole week and drive him crazy. Then eventually, <laughs> he put a little ad in the local paper and he said, okay, if you have enough people sign up, minimum 15 people sign up, then we'll give you opportunity to teach. But if you don't, please don't come back. I don't want to see you again in my office. <laughs> so I, I call, call all my friends. I, I call my restaurant friends because I was working in a restaurant as a, as a waiter and also a chef. I always I get to know a lot of clients. I ask all of the all of the people to know that please sign up the cooking class. Otherwise, <laughs> I would not be able to stay in this beautiful city, Davis. It's a university town. Eventually, mm -hmm. when they put it in, within a week, forty three people sign up. So I end up teaching cooking class for five years. Fantastic. Now today, it's very common, Martin, that you know a chef will be on TV. But going back. Um, it was unheard of when you started. Very rare. So how did you make that transition from the teaching in, to in front of the camera? Well, actually, it's, it's a very interesting story. Why I was teaching at UC Davis in the summer, one of the summer, a friend of mine uh, open, opened a restaurant in Calgary, Alberta. And then he himself doesn't know how to cook, but he wanted to open a restaurant so he can apply his old fam whole family to come to Canada to help him out. So I, he said, well, M Martin, why did you come up here and help me to open the restaurant and show me a few recipes and this and this and this. So I went up there and when I was up there, I said, okay, in order to do that, first, you'll take me in as a partner. I own 15% and then you have to pay me. And then you have to help me to apply. Also my mother and my younger brother come out of China. And that's the, the condition I said. So then during that time, uh, uh, we, we, we normally, when people come in, I said, why don't, why bother looking at the, on the menu? You tell me how much you want to spend. I'll fix you a meal, lunch or dinner. So, so we make a lot of friends because it's so personal. And then I always give them a lot of good deals, a lot of things. So they love me so much. And then it happened. One of the frequent customer is um, a producer from a local station, which is about three blocks away from the restaurant. And then he came in one day, he said, well, uh, I think every Friday they have a talk show, a talk show, and in that talk show they have a, 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 a fifteen minutes, fifteen minutes uh, uh, cook, cooking from uh, a chef from uh, Intercontinental in Calgary. And one day he frantically called Chef Yan, we need you come over here and and take over because uh, our chef got sick. And then that's Thursday evening, and then Friday. Is that so? I just happen to be a guest. I get on. I have a good time, and then after that, and I think the general manager happened to to watch his own station. Because you go to any station that you you know the general manager always have about a lot of monitor over there. They, they check out all the competition. They normally never watch their own. They they told me I never watch my own station. That somehow I was making so much ridiculous remark. So he, he pay attention to what I'm doing. He said, oh, ask Chef Yen to come back next week. He'll come back next week. And I fool around again. I have a good time. And uh, after that, they asked me to go up to his rest, uh, the, the manager's office and say, hey, Chef Yen, how would you like to host your show? And I said, well, it's okay. I figure out at least I can know how to do about a couple hundred dishes as a chef, right? Said, we want you to host 130 shows. In the old days, nobody do 130 shows. Right. PBS, they normally do 13 shows, maximum six shows. But I'm going to do 130 shows. I think, oh, wow, that's okay. Uh, so uh, so my chef and me and, uh, and the dishwasher, three of us, crank out five shows a day. 
And in 23 days, we crank out 130. And then I make so much money in, in a month. I have never made so much money in a month. And after that, I went back. I, I, I left at the restaurant. I went back to finish my graduate degree. And, and, and then three months later, they frantically called, Chef Yang, you got to come up here. Do you have a cookbook? I said, what? what? I said, a lot of people call. And we got we got three or four people picking up the phone. And everybody asked for your recipe. You don't have a cookbook? I said, I don't have a cookbook. I don't have any money to, to publish a cookbook. <laughs> so I said, you got to publish a cookbook. So I borrowed $3,000 from 10 of my friends. So I published my own cookbook. And then we sold out in three months, 15,000 copies. That was 30 or 40 some years, 40 years ago, <laughs> you know? And, 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 and 29 cookbooks ago, because you have well over 30, right? Yeah, yeah. Now I have 31, 32 cookbooks. Some of them 32. are published in Singapore, Vietnam, and Hong Kong, and China, uh, and, and uh, in Malaysia. But anyway, uh, so so just, I just went went through all of those four years. Every time they asked me to come back, I would say, oh, oh. They double my my uh, my my, my uh, 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 hosting fee. Start with one hundred dollars the first season, then double uh, two hundred dollars the third year, four hundred dollars. But the fourth year, which I finished, the f- because one hundred thirty show four years of five hundred twenty show. So in a hurry, in four years, I did five hundred twenty shows. <laughs> And I make I make six hundred dollars per episode, so I make so much money. I I never seen so much money in my whole life. <laughs> I, I, then 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 I figure out hey, this is the beginning and the end of my career. After the four years, I moved down to move back because I get married and move back to to, to California to live with my wife in California. And then I went moved, moved to Los Angeles. This is how and I figure out I'm close to Los Angeles and I can be with just like a lot of uh, talent. They either in New York or Los Angeles. They want to be an entertainment business. So we end up cooking dinner for Jane Fonda and a few celebrities. And then all of a sudden, we got a call from a, a KQED, uh, San Francisco. Said, oh, you know, we uh, we would like to do it, to, to work with you to do a show. And since then, since 1982, we, our show started in 1978 in the fall. Four years later, after... 520 shows. Then I started with KQED, Channel 9, San Francisco. And since then, we have done close to 3,500 cooking shows worldwide. How do you keep coming up with ideas? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I travel every year. In the last 10, 15 years, I spent about 250 to 275 days all over Asia. Because our show was a, one of the very few shows from produced in the U.S. Actually, sold it to about 50 countries around the world. All over Asia, Middle East, Ireland, uh, Japan, um, India, uh, Australia, New Zealand. So we got a lot. So a lot of times they will ask me to go over there and promote the show and appear on on uh, on uh, on talk shows. And so I travel all over and I get a chance to meet with a lot of wonderful home cooks and, and top chefs. So this is how I get a lot of my inspiration idea. I'm not a genius, and I'm not. I don't pretend to do to know everything about Chinese cooking, because Chinese cooking is not for regional cooking. It's about 32 regional cuisine with 108 different style of cooking. So no Chinese chef can say that they know everything about Chinese food. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, Cantonese cooking and the specialty of where you're from and how it differs from some of the other regions? There are four different major distinctive regional cuisine as we know 
the Cantonese cuisine represented the South, which is in the um, Pearl River Delta, just like the, um, the Louisiana, uh, Mississippi Delta, a lot of seafood, a lot of um, uh, the, the, the river meets the ocean. There's a lot of wonderful seafood in terms of shrimp and crab and eel and everything. And also being in a subtropical, tropical climate, there are a lot of produce, three crops a year. Northern China, one crop. In Southern China, three crops. So throughout, just like California, throughout the year, no snow, nothing. So a lot of produce, a lot of things. So Cantonese cuisine is basically focused on freshness, the integrity of the ingredient. So when you go to a, a lot of Chinese, a Cantonese restaurant, they, they, they do a lot of steaming. They use a lot of produce, mm -hmm. a lot of uh, uh, fruit, so, and a lot of steam, steam dishes. One of the most famous is steamed whole fish with mm. scallion and ginger. That's it. So retain the integrity of the ingredient. And then you have the Sichuan hot, Sichuan Hunan hot and spicy cuisine. This is the humid, hot summer. So they need to sweat it out. And the winter's really chilly. So they got to keep themselves warm. <laughs> and then at the same time, you have the, the Shanghai cuisine, which represents the eastern part of China, which is red coats, a lot of uh, wonderful smoked fish, and a lot of uh, eels, a lot of um, uh, hairy crab, and also the dish tend to be a little bit sweeter. And then northern China, you the famous Peking duck, a lot of dumpling, a lot of noodle, a lot of pot sticker, a lot of jiaozi, and which is a lot of, uh, because it's so cold, so the fish is normally, dishes in general, a little bit greasier, a little bit oilier, and also a little bit saltier. So, but literally there are over 32 different regional cuisine. And I think in China, you ask anybody from China, they still consider the, the phrase eat in Guangzhou, eat in uh. Canada, because the availability of ingredients, like California produce a lot of, a lot of ingredients. You live in the East Coast, a lot of the stuff is actually from the West Coast, shipped all the way to the to the rest of the country, all over the world. So we, we, are, li we are very lucky. Uh, you know, you, you heard about uh, my good friend, um, Alice Water, uh, shaping mm. in, in Berkeley. And he, he she, she does a lot of farm to table because so many local farms, small farms, uh, uh, provide all of these things all throughout the year, okay? And then nowadays, of course, you know, you have greenhouse, you have hydroponic, you have all kinds of things. Now the, the produce is more readily available. But years, years, for, for years, California has been very, very fortunate. And then we live in a wonderful place that have abundance of produce and things. And then, and then, um, and uh, we, uh, since our show is in India and, um, in Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Korea, all over Asia. So I get a chance to travel all over. So I have also learned from the top chef and home cook a lot of Asian specialties. So I consider myself a food and cuisine ambassador. Well, Martin, you have been an inspiration to millions with your, your shows, your books, your teachings. I'm going to ask you one thing before we, we finish today. Give us your message at the end of your show. This is a big, big, <laughs> you always put it out. Let's, let's yeah, hear it. Yeah. yeah. When we do, when we start doing the show, the general manager, asked, how do you want to name the show? And I said, you know, I don't know, but uh, I'm Yen. And most of the things that I cook 
hopefully everybody can cook. So it's like, how about Yen can cook? And then the tagline is, so can you. Yen can cook, so can you. If Yen cannot, don't even try. <laughs> <laughs> well, Martin, thank you very much. Uh, that was it's just so inspiring. Um, thanks for joining us. That was Chef Martin Yan of Yan King Cook, TV host, author, international food ambassador. For inspiration from the master himself, visit yankangcook.com for TV listings, cookbooks, recipes, and appearances. Chefs have a special bond, and as busy as we are, we are the first to come together and share our knowledge. I'm very grateful to have a circle of friends around the globe who give so much. I'm George Hirsch with today's Good to Know. The preparation of couscous symbolizes happiness and abundance. It makes for a quick, healthy dish that becomes fluffy when cooked with a slightly chewy, firm texture. Traditionally, it was a hand-rolled, but today it's made by machine. The coarsely ground durum wheat semolina is moistened and tossed with fine wheat flour until it forms tiny, round balls. There are three main types, Moroccan, Israeli, and Lebanese. Most of the couscous available in North America is instant. In Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, it's steamed over a simmered stew after being tossed with a little water or oil. Just one cup serving contains over half your daily recommended intake of selenium, a powerful antioxidant that helps fight inflammation and bad LDL cholesterol. And it's also a good source of fiber and best when using whole wheat couscous. The next time you think of couscous, consider it as a meal's nutty, flavorful main attraction, not just another side. And that's good to know. Did you know of the three main senses, smell is predominantly the main influence of food items flavor? While the taste of food is limited to sweet, sour, bitter, salty, savory, and other basic tastes, the smells of food are potentially limitless. A food's flavor, therefore, can be easily altered by changing its smell while keeping its tastes similar. Hey, Alex. Hey, George. You know, Alex, we're always talking about the flavor and how things taste, but, you know, it's, it is kind of true because before you even taste something, and sometimes even before you see something, those two main senses, aroma hits you kind of in the face first. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of what makes food memories, food memories too, right? Is the smell that you get when you walk into like your grandma's house and she's cooking your favorite meal or or you get home. I know when we do events, one of the things that you like to have is fresh baked chocolate chip cookies because that gives people the aroma of coming home or or it feels like a holiday, you know? So smell definitely adds to taste and it definitely enhances the entire experience. You know, one little thing that uh, you know, because you've been to so many of my uh, dinner parties and such, is that little trick about three quarters through the entree, the main meal, I already have, you know, the cookies, the the chilled unbaked cookies already to go into the oven. So just about the same time that they finish their entree, they start to get the first waft of smell of like a chocolate chip cookie. And that kind of transforms the whole menu and the whole meal into the the next stage, like um, not the stage that I want them to leave yet, of course. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes that's well, the stage sometimes, that I'm Sometimes, yes. At, well, then the cookies are in a bag. Nice for you to stop by. Exactly. But anyway, yeah. But no, but that, that, that smell, I mean, it's a, first of all, it's a, it's a big trick that real estate people use, like when they bake a, 
like a, a frozen pie, you know, in a house before they show it because it smells of cinnamon and sugar and apples, you know, that homey feel. Yeah. And I mean, if you're trying to convince somebody that this should be their home, you want to make them feel like they're at home, right? And how better to do that than smells like fresh baked pie or cookies. And even like what I like about that move with the cookies too is, you know, cookies are one of my favorite desserts, but cookies oftentimes they're just kind of thought of something that's out on a platter or that you bake off and then have in your cabinet or you buy at the store. But a fresh baked cookie, if you're eating it right when it comes out of the oven, is an unbelievable dessert when the chocolate's still gooey and the room has the aroma of the cookies and you dunk it in a cold glass of milk. That's one of my favorite desserts that there is. You could put ice cream on top of it. You can do so much with a fresh baked cookie. Now, the aromas and the scent are very, very important when it comes to establishing in flavor. But what you don't want to do is you don't want to trip up in people's brains fresh baked cookies and they haven't even started to eat yet. Like one of my favorite things when you're making is the uh, the apple cabbage for like roast pork dishes or something like that. And you've got uh, – I mean, I mean, just talk about that because that is just – I mean, I, I love those aromas. Never mind the flavor, the aromas. Yeah, especially in the fall, I love braised cabbage. And I have had braised cabbage in every experience that you could imagine throughout my life. My German grandmother used to make an amazing braised red cabbage when I was a kid. When I worked at the River Cafe during the fall, we'd often do a, a venison special. And when we do pork dishes for events, we shred the cabbage super thin. You can add apples to it. You add a little bit of onion. But the thing about cooking the cabbage is want to make sure that you shred your cabbage paper thin and then you get it into your pot and you get a lid on it and let it start to steam in its own moisture first. Then I like to add in the apples mm. and then hit it with a little bit of vinegar, usually like an apple cider vinegar. Now, what kind of apples? What kind of apples do you generally use? I like a Granny Smith because they're real crunchy and kind of tart. And they hold up. And they hold up. Yeah. A mm -hmm. lot of stuff when you cook it, it turns to mush, right? Mm -hmm. And you can kind of cook it slow and low in the beginning because you really want the cabbage to braise like a piece of meat would. But once it's cooked down and you've kind of gotten it to the texture that you want, I add a little bit of sugar to it just to balance out that tart. And then when you pull it out, a trick that I like to do that you know that I don't, I haven't seen it done too many other places, but I'll take another type of apple and this could be a honey crisp mm -hmm. if you want. It could be a red delicious. So it's a little bit of a sweeter apple than a granny, which is tartar. Yeah, exactly. Which, okay. Yeah. It's a little sweeter of an apple, usually red for color. And I leave the skin mm -hmm. on, I'll get the pan really hot, get a quick sear on it. But then almost make a caramel out of the leftover braising liquid, which is usually very tart because it's mostly vinegar at this point. So instead of like a traditional caramel where you would melt the sugar and then maybe hit it with a splash of chicken stock or something, this one I kind of sear the apples, then add that vinegar back in and then add the sugar in and let the sugar caramelize in the vinegar. And when you put that on top, it gives it a little stickiness too. It's almost like having a candied yeah. apple with your cabbage and it just goes so good with pork. You know, one of the rules that I've always followed is when you're eating meat, serve it with stuff that it would eat, right? And mm. pigs that are fed on apples are always delicious and just braise cabbage with apple and pork. And that dish is probably a perfect example of something that does hit all the all the senses of the taste buds, you know. Uh, once you get past the aroma, because the aroma is incredible, you're smelling the apples, the caramel, the sweet, the vinegar, the sour. But you are getting the bitter, yeah, the salty, the savory, um, and the sweet and the sour. Yeah, you get some umami yeah, out of just, that pork. Um, it's just a perfect example of 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 flavor. Now, this can be also applied to any other type of whether you're making 
uh, chilies, which would be hearty, hearty and very flavorful. Um, and those aromas definitely stay in the air and it kind of screams out at you before you ever see it, you know, or taste it, you know, as a matter yeah. of fact. And the same if you're doing something, you know, a little Italian with, uh, you know, garlic and onions and, you know, no matter what it's being used for, sauces or vegetables or braising, meats. Onion um, in a pot, in olive oil, sweating. And people go, oh, my God, it smells so good in here. What are you cooking? And it's like at this point I could be cooking anything. But that aroma draws people in, you know, the the smell of just lightly simmering garlic and onion is so familiar to so many people in the matter no matter where you're coming from, that can be curry to a marinara sauce to soups. You know, it's endless. How food is sourced and transported from field to plate is just as important as making a dish enticing and exciting. We can be inspired by ingredients sourcing locally with a mix of eclectic influences from different parts of the world with consideration to how food impacts people and communities. But what does the future of food look like? Joining us here today from one of the top-ranked culinary and hospitality colleges in the world is Dr. Jason R. Evans, Dean, College of Food Innovation and Technology, Johnson & Wales University, and Dr. Brandon J. Lewis, Associate Professor, and Dr. Raleigh Wesson, Assistant Professor. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Great to have you here. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having us. Well, Dean, first question I have for you is, before we, we dive into the program, and we have to get into it as soon as possible because there's so much to talk about. It's a, it's a fascinating program. You are a world-class speaker and proponent on the agricultural industry. Can you just give us kind of a short summary? Uh, I know you're also an associate professor at uh, SUNY Cobleskill. Just some of the key points that are facing the agricultural industry today. Sure. Um, and so, you know, first of all, it's such an honor for me to be at Johnson & Wales now with such a reputation in the food part of the food system and my background really always having been uh, in agricultural production and agricultural economics. Um, I, I would say the most pressing issue in our ag system that was highlighted, I think, pretty well during the COVID pandemic and, and continuing to be highlighted is that the level of concentration and consolidation in our food system creates real vulnerabilities. There's not a lot of resilience to a system where much of your production, much of your processing and distribution is coming from a tiny handful of players, a tiny handful of companies. And so um, we have consolidation on the production side. I mean, 50 years ago, we had over 2 million dairy producers in this country we're now looking at 50-some thousand dairy producers, many of which are part of giant uh, national cooperatives uh, that, frankly, have a lot of control over the supply of milk in the economy. So that's happened on the production side. It's been happening on the processing side for a very, very long time. And it's bled now into retail and distribution. So if you have shocks to any one entity mm -hmm. in the system, entire regions of the United States can go without certain products. So all of that's happening on top of uh, failing rural economies and a situation in which it's very, very difficult for smaller scale farm and food businesses to actually take foothold um, and, and earn long run economic viability. So there's just this, there's this sort of perverse outcome where 
um, the larger conventional commoditized food system can break down in ways that the smaller, more localized or regionalized system can address, but yet those companies have such a, have such a difficult time getting into the market and creating livelihoods. Well, I know that could be a full uh, show on its own. I think we're going to come back to some of these issues in the, in, the, in the future with you. And maybe we can even touch on some of it and how it overlaps with your local program. But I just want to get to uh, Brandon real quick, uh, because you've been identified as a hero with your, your food work with immigrants and, and that type of support. Can you can share a moment of what your efforts have been in that in that field? Well, you, you, you can't see it, but I, I'm blushing <laughs> from, uh, from being called a hero. But um, I'm just, um, you know, we, we have a, a group of chefs here that are passionate about our local food system and the community players in it. My background before Johnson & Wales was uh, I worked at the Genesis Center, which is a nonprofit in Providence, Rhode Island, that helps immigrants and refugees get affiliated to living in the U.S. And so I worked in workforce development. I trained a lot of um, uh you know, culinary students or people who um, who immigrated here to the U.S., I trained them in culinary arts and uh, food safety and helped them get jobs throughout the city. And so um, that experience was pretty transformative for me and also sort of illuminated a pathway for me that brought me towards culinary sustainability as, as really a career passion. And that's what brought me back to Johnson Wales, where I, where I um, actually did my undergraduate here and uh, my master's here. And so I came back to my alma mater and... Um, and then uh, worked with, uh, with Raleigh, and we basically started a wellness and sustainability concentration uh, with another team, uh, with a, a larger team of chefs. And that concentration kind of blew up, and that's kind of what brings us here today, I think. For sure. But now that you mentioned Raleigh, let's just bring him up and center for a moment, because not only does he wear many, many hats and, and, and uniforms with his uh, uh, chef acclaim and working in Michelin restaurants, and we can, again, do a whole show just on, on you too. But also you work as uh, executive director and co-founder for the Jacques Pepin Foundation. You want to share a moment of that with us? Sure. Well, thank you so much, George. That was very kind. Uh, similar to the work that Brandon was doing at the Genesis Center, the Jacques Pepin Foundation supports education and training programs around the country that help adults with barriers to employment find employment in food service. So in fact, we are a granting organization that has uh, provided a grant to the Genesis Center as well as uh, about four dozen, we're right around 50 uh, organizations around the country. We've, we've granted out over $700,000 over the last three years to mm -hmm. organizations around the country that are doing that work. And I mean, I think what's interesting about this is that we're, we're all an, engaged in, and you can tell from our various backgrounds, we're all engaged in thinking about the food system with a systems approach, right? You, you can't actually just say, oh, I just want to buy local and, and have that be an answer to all of the problems that we have in the food system. Whether we're trying to feed our local community or whether we're trying to uh, patriate immigrants that are coming in or whether we're trying to make our food system more resilient all the way around or whether we're trying to provide more nutritional meals for our children in, in the public school system, all of that is all tied together. And, and I think that's really what brings us to this excellent new degree in sustainable food systems, is that we want to train the next generation of passionate cooks, chefs, foodies, to understand that the system is very interconnected and to be prepared to participate in their communities in trying to solve these bigger problems. 
So what does the curriculum actually look like? How do we distill this into, let's say, traditional culinary arts, uh, maybe traditional hospitality education, and turn this into the sustainable program? One thing we, we do is we, we've always hung our hat at Johnson Wales on experiential education. Uh, it's a main, a big part of what we do. Our students are actually involved. They cook in the lab. And now in this program, we're not just cooking, but we're going to the farm. We're growing. We're working with our community and we're, we're, um, we're producing food uh, concepts that, uh, that are there's something sort of special and new and revolutionary in the food systems major. And this is something that no one else really is doing anywhere in the world. Um, we have over 60 labs just in Providence related to food and beverage. And, uh, and we have a community where we're sort of blessed to be in New England, where we have tons of farms within our geographical region. I can go on uh, field trips with my students and we're at farms in less than 20, 30 minutes. And we have uh, literally over 100 to choose from uh, everywhere from hydroponics into crop and uh, livestock farms, uh, dairy farms, all within our, our area. So the experiential piece really brings students you know, to those places where they get a hands-on experience, not only working with community members and food, food web members, but also working with those products in our labs uh, in person and actually cooking and tasting the difference. How does the typical student enter? Do, do they initially come in and say, hey, I, I want something in sustainable food? Or is it something that they're looking at culinary arts and go, wow, this is an offering that, that you have that I might be interested in? How does, what is, is the chicken and egg kind, yeah, of, kind of thing? It's sort of interesting because this program is really, um, we're in our second cohort now, and we're really finding that we have a, a real mature student base that's being attracted to this program. Some of these students bring in transfer credits, and some of these students um, are coming in just with a real mature mindset to say, I'm looking for a career in food systems. Maybe it's in the culinary side. Maybe it's in supply chain management. Maybe they want to get into policy and political science and actually revolutionize the food industry through policymaking and, and rulemaking. Um, a lot of those students have these different passions, and it's really exciting to see what's bringing them here and what sort of different diverse backgrounds. Uh, we're excited about this new student population. What are some of the career paths that a student who takes this program can expect to get into upon graduation? That's sort of like such a huge question because we have a, a humongous cone. When we talk about sustainability, obviously we can dabble into every career on the planet, right? Everybody uh, has something. We all live on the same planet flying through space and we have to live here and survive. And so every career relates to sustainability. But in the food system, we have really a, a whole field. Um, everything from farm to table cooking to policy and advocacy where you could be working either for like a state government, like you could be working in the Food Policy Council or for the Food uh, Office of, um, uh, we have, um, goodness, we have uh, an office Rhode of Island Food Policy Council. Thank you, the Rhode Island Food Policy Council. And we, um, uh, we're not the only ones though. And there are also large companies like Unilever and there's, uh, there's Nestle that actually have entire um, units and divisions and sustainability officers. And so you could be working for the for-profit side or you could be working in the, the government side or even the nonprofit NGO side, um, just in the policy arena alone. We also have supply chain management. So students who actually understand uh, and can describe to the, the, their, um, their purchasers uh, the sustainability of these products, like the political ecology 
that relates to where these products come from and what communities are affected by them. And we also have public health. I mean, with, there's so many arenas and so many jobs and career fields in this section that it's, it's amazing that our students can come in uh, with this, you know, all these possibilities. And they have eight free electives in this program, so they can really diversify. I think the key thing to recognize, though, is that you know students are still attracted to Johnson and Wales to do culinary. We're still known as one of the best, if not the best, culinary training program in the country at the university level, and students come here because they want to cook. But what we know about this generation of students is that they want to do something more than just cook, and and we are responding to that call and saying, we're not just going to teach you how to cook, we're going to teach you how to think, we're going to teach you how to think about the food system, we're going to give you opportunities to go out and participate in the food system in different ways. One of the courses that uh, Chef Brandon alluded to is, uh, is a course that I'm teaching, an academic called Cultivating Local Food Systems, and in that course, the students are required to go out and spend volunteer hours working for an organization that does the kind of work that they're interested in. So I have students that are currently working in uh, high school programs helping to improve the nutrition that's being offered there. I have students that are working for Wholesome Wave out of Connecticut and helping to provide access. I have students that are working for the Rhode Island Food Bank and thinking about food insecurity. I have students that are, that are volunteering at Farm Fresh Rhode Island and thinking about food hubs that are connecting our local farmers to our chefs. And almost all of these students have already come back to me in the middle of their on-site observation and said, I love it so much, Chef, I'm planning to continue to volunteer or take a job there as soon as I get done with the observation. And, and for me and for us, that's just so heartwarming to hear that these students are finding their niche because we're exposing them to these different ways that they can interact with food and interact with the system. Yeah, I, I would say that food does not find its way often enough into policy discussions at the federal or even state level, and certainly not the local level in most places. So I think our intent is to graduate food professionals who just raise the level of thinking about food uh, in this society, in this, in, in this economy. And the good thing is, because they're walking out with the technical skills that they have, some of them are going to be chefs and restaurateurs, and those are real influencers in the way that people experience and think about food. So I think that this is us doing our part in making sure that the collective world is, is thinking about food as important to our economy, our communities, our health, our mental health, our lifelong well-being, um, just cranking out a bunch of thinkers. Well, I think this kind of comes full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning and that is the consolidation of some of the major players in the food industry, right? So if you only have a couple of players that are controlling dairy or meat or whatever the industry might be that we're talking about, you can be assured that they're involved in politics and they're involved in policy making. So it's important to educate these students to think critically and then get into the food system on the ground level where their voices can be heard. Because I think that the problem is that just a couple of voices are being heard in policy making and we need to change that. No question about it. The power of sort of the chef, quote unquote power, um, really doesn't just come with product sourcing. Uh, it comes with that advocacy piece as well. And also remember chefs are providers. They're providing food access, food justice potentially. And um, our students are stepping up to this sort of moral you know, it's one of the first times we have students who are saying like, chef, I'm finding like a moral compass in my cooking, like a, a, you know, a North Star that's sort of driving me in a direction. And that's something you've never seen in a traditional culinary program. You know, you've seen people drive for excellence 
without a definition of what that excellence is. And this is something that's inspiring our students. I dare say it's transformational. I have students who are literally in tears when we go to farms and we're working with, you know, the hogs or working with the chickens and they're seeing where their food actually comes from and they're helping produce it that day. We're cooking out in the field under the, under the sky, like in the middle of the field, we set up a, a mess kitchen and we, and we prepare food while we work on the farm for the day. And it's just these experiences are just changing their lives and changing the way they cook and the way they think about their role in the food system. The, the last piece I'll say there is that students are coming out graduating with our goal is that they no longer think they're a top-down leader of the food system. The chefs are the ones who just demand product. I want this product. I want it now. I want it shipped in from wherever it comes from. Instead, we're looking at community players that work with their food system and their local growers to work with the seasons and cook what's actually, you know, naturally available within their growing um, uh, area. And so those students are working collaboratively and cooperatively with their growers and they're enriching and, you know, really providing resilience and redundancy within their food system by supporting and uh, propping up their local growers. This is very, very exciting, exciting program. When I first, when when Raleigh, when you first shared it, it was like, I, I was like jumping up because this is something that has been overdue for chefs for leaders for a very, very long time. I mean, it, it is so overdue. It's so what's needed and required out in the workforce as, as leaders to trickle down to their workforce, to the consumer. You know, as a public person for many, many years, you, they go by example of what you do. And you three, you know, the introduction today was to make a point that you three have been such exceptional leaders in, in in different disciplines, in your own little tracks and silos, but collectively together now in this program, it's not my time to talk. It's your time to talk because this this is something that is really needs to be known by uh, by everyone. And I and I truly truly have to thank you. I know we have so much more we have to get back to and we'll come back to this program. But from now, um, from bottom of my heart and, and Alex, because Alex and myself talk about this all the time, we thank you for sharing uh, your work because you're making uh, a global impact, a global impact for the community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Evans Dean, College of Food and Innovation Technology, Dr. Brandon Lewis, Associate Professor, and Dr. Raleigh Wesson, Assistant Professor. For more about the Sustainable Food Systems Program at Johnson & Wales University, visit jwu.edu. For more food, culture, and lifestyle tips, guest interviews, and our podcast, visit wliw.org radio and chefgeorgehirsch.com. And join our conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WLIWFM and at George Hirsch. Okay, I promised to bring back, Alex, some of that flavorful dish that was in my pocket. Uh, Not literally, but what do you think is the most globally flavorful food there is? Like, If there's just like the number one. I think if we're going by global, I'm going with a curry. That's you know, because yeah, you have a you have Indian curry, you've got Asian and Thai curries. 
I, curry is popular here too. You know, there's so many Indian and Thai restaurants that you can get amazing curry at. Well, this was a very, very short game show because there was only that one question and, and you won the prize. So we can actually talk about the curries and and the flavors that curries, you know, there are, you know, the three principal curries, you know, the yellow, which you make a lot, I know, which is the mildly, mildly heat. Um, probably more people are accepting of that curry than the red curry, which is kind of medium heat and the green green curry, which is one of my favorite curries, um, Thai curries, which is the the hot. Not necessarily that it's spicy, over hot, it can be, but just that it's kind of pronounced on your tongue and then it remains on that slow, slow burn. Yeah, well, that's what I like about it is I like hot food, but I like hot food with flavor, right? I, mm-hmm. I don't want to go to the challenge where you try and eat the hottest chicken wing ever made and see if you die. That just burns my tongue and doesn't do anything for me. But a good spicy curry with heat like you're describing, especially those green Thai Thai, uh, curries, they're hot, but they're flavorful and they roll through your tongue. Honestly, I could put yours up with one of the best curries there is. Curry is an important dish globally too, right? Because a lot of these areas that they're very popular in that we're talking about have very heavy populations. There's a lot of people who live in these areas. Um, A lot of them are vegetarian-based cultures, and when you make a really proper curry, you get a calorically dense but healthy meal that can feed a lot of people, and it can hold up to just being a vegetarian dish and still provide you with everything you need. I I mean, when, when we make curry, right, if you just think about everything that goes into it, you've got onion, ginger, garlic. Usually we use some type of tomato product, make like a slurry out of that, a little bit of stock, and then... There's two ways to go. You could use coconut milk, which is super healthy for you, again, calorically rich, or you can go dairy route and you can use cream. You can use sour cream. Then we like to put in uh, cauliflower, right? Celery in there. And now you're talking about a really, really rich, flavorful, dense stew that's also super healthy that you can feed a lot of people on the cheap. It's a great flavorful meal. And again, it hits that aroma first, sight, taste. Glad to have you join us on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. Our producer is Delaney Hafner, along with production support from Kyle Lynch. Supervising producer is Allie Gimble. George Hirsch and Diane Michelli are co-executive producers. George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio is a co-production of Hirsch Media and Audio Engagement Group, LLC. Thanks so much for tuning in to George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, the show that celebrates how our lives are connected through food and culture. For more episodes and our podcast, visit wiw.org slash radio and chefgeorgehirsch.com and your favorite streaming and podcast platforms. We'll see you next week right here on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. <laughs>